Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WET, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the Health Promotion Suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for a non-traditional campus. My name is Bella, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. My name is Josh, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And my name is Quinn. My pronouns are he, him, his. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be your hosts for this podcast. Let's get into it. This episode was recorded prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is affecting all of our lives. While PSU classes are online through the end of spring 2020 term, Shaq remains fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students at this unprecedented time. We hope that you all are staying safe and healthy and will benefit from our content this term. So it's, an, it's important to, to take a historical kind of long arc context of white privilege and what that means, right? And to do that, you have to understand how whiteness was created, mm-hmm. um, how it became a thing, right? So you have very Supreme Court cases that literally ruled on what white was and what white wasn't. The, the word Caucasian came from pseudoscience, right? Mm. It's not an actual thing. People still use it and they think they're being technical and formal and correct. <laughs> really, Caucasian is arguably the most racist race category there is, right? Um, and so I think that to, to have an understanding of white privilege, you really do have to trace the roots and the history of whiteness and how we created it, right? Uh, the example that a lot of people refer to is that when Irish and Italians came to the U.S., they weren't white. Mm-hmm. Um, Irish and Italians were seen as the black people of white people mm-hmm. until they were racialized uh, through a class lens because they would rather be poor and white than be poor and be alongside black people, mm-hmm. right? So in this society, this phrase, uh, the, the wages of whiteness, um, that there is a social and a psychological um, privilege and wage that white people get paid mm-hmm. um, by aligning themselves with other white Yes, ethnic groups yes. and separating themselves from, from the black population. Right? And you saw that with indentured servants as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah, and so exactly. So there were, like, Irish, for example, Irish indentured servants that saw that, okay, like, if I want to have these economic opportunities, I can't be working next to black people. I have mm-hmm. to be working next to white people. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to align with whiteness. I'm still going to be poor, but I can be poor and white and get mm-hmm. paid mm-hmm. socially mm-hmm. and through white privilege, essentially, right, through whiteness. And so I think that it's important to trace those roots for people to understand what white privilege really um, what it really means, what it represents, right? And that way it takes some of the, you know, this whole like, like white guilt and white tears thing, right? Mm-hmm. It takes some of it off an individual white person in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not like they're responsible for it, they created it, right? Or they supported it. It doesn't really matter what your mom or dad or your grand. It doesn't, it's all mm-hmm. irrelevant. You mm-hmm. need to just acknowledge and ex- respect and accept the fact that it exists as real and you're benefiting from it right now, whether you mm-hmm. want to or not. Yeah. And you can't give it back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's the start of a conversation. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think if we can get there, like in my classical discussions, if we can get there, then it's a good place to, to be at, right? Um, and, but of course, the corollary of that is if there's privileges and advantages, then there's those that are not being um, a part of that advantage group, right? Yeah. Um, and the consequences in terms of structural institutional racism is that the folks that have had these privileges have got to set a lot of the rules and the laws and policies governing all the things that are fundamental mm-hmm. to health, mm-hmm. like tax codes, mm-hmm. housing policy, education policy, right? And so it, it just, and land ownership, property ownership, mm. really critical, right? The the dispossession of indigenous and native communities to then have farms, and we associate farms with whiteness. Mm-hmm. Well, that land was given to white people only, white yes. men specifically, yeah. for free. 
um, so that they can do whatever they want with it, right? So how do we trace the roots of like the fact that white students are more likely to come from a family that owns a farm or own a home? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all these historical things that we have to go back to to understand about what that looks like. And then while we're doing that, we have to understand that, well, if it was only for white people to own a home and own these farms and get this free land, um, then that means who wasn't getting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how does that add up, those opportunities add up over multiple generations to create the context that we see now expressing itself and manifesting itself in the form of health inequities? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think sometimes white people who are not maybe as far along in this conversation might be able to see like, oh yeah, there is racism. People are disadvantaged, but that doesn't mean that I am advantaged. And Dr. Kamara Jones talks about this, about how there is like the dual side of the coin. Like if there are disadvantages, then that means there are inherently advantages and people don't want to, white people specifically don't always want to acknowledge that. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that is, Again, that's kind of like if we can get to the point where that's at least acknowledged. Yeah. Um, even if there's like, you know, people don't go outside like, okay, white people can like, let's yeah. just like, that would be nice. You know, mm-hmm. I always appreciate it, of course, right? But I think that just appreciating that is important. And I actually had a chance to host Dr. Kamar Jones in my course earlier this term. Mm-hmm. And she talked about some of these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's an art to what she brings to it in, in terms of like storytelling to mm-hmm. reflect that. And I think in very many, in various ways, I think that, um, Public health, we can do a better job of framing and phrasing things yeah, uh, to make them more approachable and palatable, digestible. Not really palatable because, like, you know, it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's uh, it's important that we think about our science and our research in, uh, in ways that are um, that bring people closer and deeper into the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Jones does that very well. Yeah, I think sometimes in public health we get stuck in the numbers a little bit, mm-hmm. and I think forming forming that um, that social context and the narrative is really important with connecting connecting with the general society and forming that understanding there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, in talking about privilege, how can people that are in positions of privilege kind of not? I don't want to say fight because it doesn't have to be necessarily like that level, um, but address everyday racism or do something about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, again, this is a challenge. This is a tough question, and it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's something that I can't really respond to individually from, like, only, well, I can only respond to individually from my own perspective, right? Um, I, I think that one of the, the things I would really encourage is um, to spend some time, like, just learning. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I think that the, one of the worst things that happens in the context of conversations around white privilege and um um, basically, so some of my my female public health colleagues, um, collaborators have said about public health is that it's a largely well-meaning white women that are in public health, right? Mm-hmm. And there's an element of this that I think I've seen and I've witnessed in various capacities, right? Um, that sometimes there's folks that are definitely down to support things, um, but they haven't done the work on their own mm-hmm. to be ready to be in the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they put the burden to explain things back on people of color. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is one of the inequitable processes about addressing racism is that, um, you know, it's like this thing. It's like, well, like, clearly, like, we shouldn't, like, there's never a context in an appropriate sense where really, like, white people define what racism is or is not, right? That's mm-hmm. just ridiculous. But it's also the thing. It's like, well, it's also not up for yeah. people of color to yeah. explain to you all the ways in which yeah. uh, things are, that you are privileged or that, you know, you have advantages and the ways in which this is ingrained into our systems and our institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times it's useful for white people to just do some learning on their own so that they have a baseline to come into the conversation to come to the space, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a bare minimum. Um, And so I think for me, some of my classes, 
like I have assignments where I just have them literally just like do a literature search on just find one research article on like racism and health or like sexism and health or homophobia mm-hmm. because you can do this. Yes. Like, you can do more than just like other things on the internet. You have mm-hmm. access to all these things. Like mm-hmm. do some self-learning. Stop being so damn lazy with it. Show up prepared to have a critical conversation. Mm-hmm. If you start there, then we can really get to like a deeper part um, in terms of what we can do in terms of like organizing action, right? But I do think that uh, that's more of an individual level. Uh, I think institutionally, um, you see universities like Portland State, OHSU, other universities forming these committees like diversity, equity, inclusion committees, um, things of that nature. I think institutionally, you have to have folks, um, you know, especially if it's white people in leadership positions that are, they have done the self-learning. Mm-hmm. Um, they truly actually engage and value the work. They're not just doing it because it makes them look good, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is a very real thing called racial capitalism, where it's like if you do diverse equity inclusion work and put a few brown kids on your brochure, it makes you look good and diverse oh. and you get more more appeal. Oh, that's but then when you. those students come here, they're subjected to racism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like we want to avoid doing things uh, institutionally that are basically just racial capitalism, right? Exploiting yeah. people of color's presence, yes. but subjecting them to racism when they get here, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the key thing is that for folks in leadership positions at the institutional level or structural level, um, if it is a person uh, or a white person that's in those positions, that, that self-learning, that learning thing first, and then fully taking up um, this particular issue, not as an auxiliary or secondary issue, but as a core issue. Yes. Like the values of an entire institution have to be through a racial equity lens, right? And I think centering that, because I think what happens too often is that it becomes this tangential thing mm-hmm. it's like you'll have like a for example like a faculty meeting mm-hmm. um, oh today we're going to talk about race and it's not like an everyday yeah. part of the conversation or it's like you know we have a committee for diversity and inclusion yeah but we don't talk about diversity and inclusion in other committees yes like yeah how are they separate mm-hmm. um if you're talking about student recruitment and attention you need to be talking about if you're talking about the budget you need to be talking about it if you're mm-hmm. talking about uh, a faculty search you need to be talking about it right mm-hmm. If you're talking about uh, promotion and tenure guidelines, you need to be talking about it, right? It's not a secondary thing. It should be a lens through which we see everything institutionally, right? So I think a core thing in terms of making those changes and advocating and being an ally is trying to figure out the ways in which we need to get that accomplished, um, regardless of who's in the leadership position, but I think especially at predominantly white institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I something Dr. Shell Forster at... Um, Shaq actually talks about is having the lens of curiosity when you're educating yourself. And there's a psychological reason of when you're in the curiosity mindset, your fear and your judgments are pushed aside. And so being able to like fully try to learn and explore and learn from people of color from the internet, I think, instead of just asking people of color on the street to explain racism to you every day and trying to relieve that burden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it does, that's a good place to start. Like a common example that I, that in conversations I've had, you know, with like a group of people together and people of different racial ethnic backgrounds, um, like conversations about hair come up, right? Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, there'll be like a couple of black women and we'll be talking and they'll make a comment, a reference to like their hair texture, right? And I'll be like, oh, like, you know, da, 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 da. I got like 4C. And then mm-hmm. like a white person's like, oh, what's 4C? Like, mm-hmm. and it's just like, you could... You have a smartphone in your Google. pocket. Like, you don't have to be in this conversation. Yeah. If you were yeah. supposed to be in a conversation, you'd be prepared to be in a conversation before you got here today. Mm-hmm. So why now do these individuals and do we have to come to you and explain to you, like, what the conversation is about, right? And mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's just uh, something as simple as that. Um, and I feel like it's a very anecdotal, like, kind of trivial example maybe. But like, I just feel like that's really what it comes down to. It's just stop being lazy. Do some work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Put we have to worry work. about ourselves and our communities. We shouldn't also simultaneously have to, like... Mm-hmm worry about 
you know, whether or not you're right up on the most recent way that racism yeah. is like how you're affecting us. Yeah. Right? And have humility in it and know that you're going to be wrong and yeah. know that you're going to make mistakes. And that's part of the process, but also not like letting that be an excuse from saying like, oh, well, I didn't know this or yeah. I have a limited perspective because of my privilege. Like, yeah, that only goes so far. You need to educate yourself. It does. And it really only goes so far because I think that's important that folks understand this idea of positionality mm-hmm. and like, intersectionality, right? Um, I think sometimes, uh, I think a lot of white students sometimes think that they don't have anything to offer in a conversation because they're white. Um, now, granted, there are certain like permutations of identity positionality, like cis, straight, white, Protestant, you know, able-bodied white man. Like, mm-hmm. we're like, okay, like, but there's still ways in which we can engage in these conversations and not be so distracted by um, ways in which we have or have not been oppressed or excluded, right? I think mm-hmm. the idea of intersectionality really centers the idea that we all have a perspective and experience that's relevant to any conversation about exclusion and oppression, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to recognize when is your time to hold space and when is not your time to hold that space, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, um, yeah, there's a, that's almost like step one yeah. in the discourse process, right? If we're going to have dialogue here today, rules of engagement. Yeah. You have them near the top of the list. I think this topic of... Um, White people talking about race when people of color are not in the room. We could probably talk for a long time about that. But I think there is value in having conversations about race when there's not a person of color in the room. And also recognizing, like, there's a seat at the table that's not being held here. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, I mean, part of this question also is what can people of privilege um, do to uplift and support communities of color, and specifically communities of color here at PSU? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's another challenging question because I think it's hard to respond to that in any, like, absolute broad universal sense, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I think it'd just be my take, my perspective on it. Um, I think generally it's – there's always this balance of um, – I mean, the first thing is just, like, show up mm-hmm. um, and then be prepared to show up. Show up in a good way, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most thing, the uh, most important thing. Um, so I think that – yeah, the first thing I think about right now, maybe it's because like there's election stuff going on, it's just like, you know, what happened with the previous presidential election, right? When people didn't show up and vote, mm-hmm. uh, that type of thing, right? And when you break down the demographics, there's a certain demographic that didn't show up and, and vote in a particular way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that just as that is an example, I, I just feel like there's ways in which we just gotta, it's important for people to show up. If, if this is something that's of actual concern, um, then you gotta show it. Um, mm-hmm. You can't just be for, you know, like, I, I just, I don't know. It's like, so there's this thing where I think that, um, you know, for a white student or a white person to have friends of color, it's a benefit for them socially, right? Um, it's almost like the racism barometer goes down because, mm. or people sometimes that, that date interracially, mm-hmm. they think all of a sudden that they're not racist, right? Yeah. Well, that's not how racism works. You can't just have friends of color, a partner of color, um, had a friend, of, you know, mm-hmm. that's just not how racism works, right? So you can't, it's not just enough for you to feel like I don't have to work on myself anymore because I'm looking at my friends or looking mm-hmm. at my partner, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also not enough to just talk about that you care about these things, right? Yeah. I think sometimes you got to show up in ways that are more tangible and more meaningful, right? And so I think that, um, you know, I don't know what that has to look like or what that should look or feel like on the PSU campus, right? Um, but I know that the most one of the most recent things that's happened on campus that was very much, um, uh, you know, at least one of the ways it was kind of divided and fractured um, was along racial lines was the disarmed PSU discourse, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, having gone to a few of those forums and hearing various people comment, um, and particularly uh, white female students comment about their concerns around safety, particularly at night when walking around, um, that that was a very, like, 
a specific and valid and like important lens to see it mm-hmm. uh, as a, a white woman walking around at night on campus, right? Because notions of safety are very much gendered. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that definitely racialized version uh, notions of, of safety as well. Um, but to have that have such a controlling narrative over whether or not, you know, um, campus officers should or should not be armed, it ignores the daily factual evidence, right? So yeah. the prospect of um, being a victim of crime or sexual assault at, at night is a very it's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's nobody in, in PSU that would disagree with that and that we need to do things about that, right? Um, but the prospect of that being a thing, um, and it is too frequently a thing, um, it juxtaposed against the daily, everyday reality, not the prospect, the actual everyday yes. reality of having a stress response mm-hmm. as a person of color walking by somebody on campus with a firearm, right? Mm-hmm. That happens every day to hundreds, if not thousands of students. Yeah. The concern about safety at night, that happens way too much, but it's not, they're not directly comparable, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes when we want to have these conversations about how we can support um, communities of color on the PSU campus, for example, just, just that one example um, highlights that there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, from an intersectional standpoint, I think that there's a very strong argument and, and there's validity to, 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 you know, both angles, both sides, right? But I think that the, the key thing is that there's still a missing link there and mm-hmm. it's minimizing uh, that everyday experiences that are embodied, um, the physiological embodied experiences of racism um, that people of color experience, right? Yeah. We don't have to have um, multiple people be subjected to, uh, you know, be, to be shot and killed by campus uh, officers, right? The prospect of that happening elicits a stress reaction mm-hmm. every day, even if it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And I think that that's a space where I think that, you know, it's just as an example to think about well, what might need to change in order for folks to see, uh, to have a more nuanced perspective about these conversations, right? And I think it's a very serious thing for PSU too. And I think that the folks that are involved in those conversations and that work, um, I don't doubt that they understand these concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does that mean in terms of going forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's one of the, the, just an example where maybe some more dialogue, more conversations, right? And I'm sure there's more. There's various other ways in which we can think about this, right? In terms of like, you know, here yeah. at, you know, student health counseling services, right? I mm-hmm. think that there's a, there's a way in which um, folks can show up in a way that's really articulating and, and um, advocating for greater representation mm-hmm. um, in terms of staff and the services that are available, right? That are more culturally responsive, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they don't directly benefit from them themselves personally, it's something that they can do, right? And who knows, in the end, you might end actually end up benefiting from them yeah. indirectly, right? Yeah. And that that's important not just for individuals who are coming to providers, but that's important for communities here. And having a even just a sense of safety and knowledge that you you have a resource, a health resource that will understand your perspective and yeah. culture will make a huge impact on your outcomes. Um, so I want to close off with talking about what does racism look like in Portland and at PSU? And we talked a little bit about PSU, but yeah. in Portland specifically. Yeah, so so I've only been in Portland for like three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, real talk, I, one of the reasons I, I, I was deliberating about whether or not I would accept the position here uh, was because of the history of racial exclusion in the state of Oregon and then in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Um, so in Portland, racism looks like a lot of things. It evolves. Um, and so I think historically, um, folks that are from the Pacific Northwest may or probably know, at least they, I would hope that they learned this in high school, uh, that Oregon came from the Oregon Territory. There's like Idaho, Washington, mm-hmm. and, you know, Oregon, obviously, uh, maybe Wyoming as well. Um, that was basically um, 
you know, land given to to white men to go and do whatever they wanted with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and indigenous and native communities were violently removed and dispossessed of their lands using the military in a lot of uh, instances. Um, and that's kind of how Oregon became Oregon, right? Mm-hmm. There's a video game back in the day, I think it was called Oregon Trail. I never played it because I didn't have a computer growing up. Um, I so go west. <laughs> I think it's a little bit before my time. <laughs> yeah, it's about, I think. Well, I think it was going around around my time. I just didn't have a computer. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding, and it could be wrong. It's like it's Oregon Trail. Go west, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that that very frontiersman thing is a very colonial, colonized, mm-hmm. racist way in which Oregon territory was settled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the beginning, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't get much better <laughs> from there. Um, there were laws that were passed that were called the Racial Exclusion Acts mm-hmm. that basically banned people of color um, from being in a state or from owning land and property in a state. There are various laws about interracial marriage, things of that nature, right? Um, and then specifically in Portland, there was redlining. And so the Federal Housing Administration, which is now HUD Housing Urban Development, they collaborated with the Homeowners Loan Corporation to essentially uh, create these what are called redlining maps that mm-hmm. valued um, certain geographic spaces within the city. Uh, based on their risk of lending and mm. all the areas that were too risky for lending. So basically they went back home loans in these areas were all like the low income communities of color. Um, and the effect of that, you know, over multiple generations is that people of color didn't have any way to be able to purchase their homes, right? So they're systematically mm-hmm. denied the opportunity for home ownership, right? Mm-hmm. And that leads into effects that we see with gentrification today. Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of folks are probably familiar with this idea of white flight. Mm-hmm. Um, gentrification in many ways is like the white return. Mm-hmm. Um, so the generation or two after white flight, um, that generation coming back into the city, not necessarily like they're trying to do it. It's not like a malicious thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of flow without like a conscious type thing to it, right? Uh, but the idea is that if you disinvest and devalue these properties, through various mechanisms. Well, capitalism has to capitalism, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is capitalism is going capitalism. Right? <laughs> yeah. If you suburbanize, um, so basically you have redlining, and then you have the Federal Highway Act in 1956, uh, which is how we get I-5, which they decided to put through a black community. Mm. Um, uh, you have that happening, and then you have the GI Bill, all kind of coalescing, right? The GI Bill was basically the main way we had upper mobility in the United States, right? Um, it's part of the um, package for a package of policies that Franklin Delano Roosevelt passed after World War II that basically set up a structure for home loans, for home ownership and college education. But something like 97% of those funds went to straight white men, mm-hmm. right? And so even though that was 97% of the returning bets, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this policy subsidizing home ownership and college education opportunities, that Federal Highway Act and then redlining, all these things going on, and also racial issue covenants happening in Portland as well, where basically private homeowners like you and me would get together with our neighborhood association and create legally binding contracts that say that we're not going to sell our homes to a person of color or allow anybody of color to live on our property unless they're a servant, right? Mm. Um, so you had all these things happening at the same time in Portland. And then, of course, once you end up um, suburbanizing, saturating, you know, developing the suburbs as much as you can, you can't make any more money there. And you've already left disinvested spaces within the urban areas that are devalued. So the best way to make your money is go buy up cheap land properties, mm. you know, Improve them, oh uh, yeah, and then flip them, put them back in the right. So I think yeah. that there's and there's huge racist connotations to improving neighborhoods and right. yeah, looking at oh the new supermarket that's gonna make everything better. Yeah, exactly right, and I think that um, you know so yeah, so I think gentrification in many ways is a an expression of um, historic racism, right, and, mm-hmm. and obviously current racism too. But I would say that gentrification really is only it's, it's strictly about class. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the term originally came from from London and France, right, and it was basically um, you know 
upper middle class whites and elites displacing working class whites, right? Uh, so it's not inherently about you know uh, about race, mm-hmm. right? But obviously, well, it's interesting. In the I US think it's different. I think also like I have that context because I'm from Oakland, and so mm-hmm. it very much is about race in Oakland. Yeah. Um, and it, it's also interesting, like, uh, <laughs> activism in Portland is so different from there. And so having that context, I have to always kind of <laughs> remind myself of, like, yeah. what racism looks like in Portland is yeah. very different. Yeah, and so actually I lived in Oakland for five years, and, like, um, yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, like, I mean, in Portland, too, it, it is racism. And yeah. Race, it's a racial answer for sure, right? So, like, um John Powell has this, this really important work that he wrote, um, like 2002, called uh, The One-Two Knockout of Gentrification or something along those lines. And he talks about various ways in which gentrification works, right? And I think that it really it's, a, it's really about class and money, right? Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right? In the United States, you can't separate class and race, right? Yeah, um, exactly. This idea of capitalism and racial capitalism. In the United States, all capitalism is racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. We don't have the distribution of wealth without slave labor and disposition of indigenous lands. We have no capitalism for mm-hmm. the most part without racial capitalism, right? So you can't talk about gentrification in the United States and and, and racism is not involved, right? I think in Portland, um, what we see though is because of the, the communities of color, uh, the population of communities of color versus the white population, you see actual like what, what we saw, um, you know, historically in London and France, there's actually white people displacing other white people as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but disproportionately, it's a community color affected, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the gentrification is one way in which it's very obvious and tangible in which racism is, um, has affected health opportunities, mm-hmm. um, housing stability, um, who can live where, right? Because we got to think about not just like the places that are being gentrified, but where folks are being displaced to, yes. and whether or not they're welcomed in those new communities, and whether mm-hmm. or not they have the support services they need, right? And then mm-hmm. also this idea of root shock, that Minnie Fulop talks about this uprooting of community, right? Mm-hmm. That has uh, emotional, psychological con- health consequences, right? So it's not just about, you know, um, uh, the housing element. It's not just about the access to services or like the exposure to worse air quality or now you're in a neighborhood where there's a lot of racist people there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the connection that we have to our places and being uprooted that can yeah. be damaging for our health as well. Yeah, having a sense of place and home and belonging is so vital, yeah. especially when you're having that context of racism. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to wrap up our conversation. It went a little bit longer than we thought, but hopefully um, you all will get something out of this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. Join us next week wherever fine podcasts are streamed for another deep dive into wellness. We'll be starting on episodes that directly align with our new normals during this time. And we're all very excited to be able to put out that content and resources for y'all. As I've alluded to in the last few outros, we here at What and Shack have been in the works of finalizing our plans on how to move forward with connecting and serving y'all throughout this virtual time. Next week's outro, we'll have links and information to those finalized plans, and I'll be giving y'all the details then. So stay tuned and feel free to reach out to us for any questions or comments in the meantime on our Instagram DMs or our email, what at pdx.edu. Links in the episode description as always. Stay safe and well, everyone. Until next week.